Well, I would like to get started maybe a couple minutes early because I think there's a lot for us to talk about. Uh, I want to start by introducing myself. My name is Dwayne Crum. I am with an organization called HIV Hope. We work all around the world uh, doing seminars that empower local people to create their own new strategies, methods, messages for HIV education and ministry that are specific to their own culture. So we do seminars where we get people involved in discussing and talking about their culture and, and what will motivate people in their particular culture to make the choices that can bring this epidemic under control and overcome stigma and discrimination, get people tested, and so on. In this particular session, we're going to be talking in a later session at 4 o'clock about HIV education. In this particular session, I wanted to talk about new developments in the area of HIV. And there are always new developments, always things that we're learning. Uh, so I'm following the, the press all the time. And by the way, over on the table is a sign-up sheet. If you would be interested, we periodically send out uh, an email digest of what's been in the, the international press relative to HIV, including some comments about uh, how maybe these things can be used or maybe abused, some of the information that, that becomes available. If you'd be interested in getting that email on a regular basis, there's no charge. Just put your sticker on, on one of those sheets over there. We'd be glad to send it to you. There are other options on there, too, if you would be interested in it. Uh, I want to start with prayer. Will you join me? Father God, thank you for this opportunity to explore this subject. I thank you for the people who have shown such an interest and for the fact that you have the answers to this disease. We'd ask that you would be the center of our discussion, our conversation this afternoon, and that, that we would see the things that you want us to see. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do is bring up some subjects that have been in uh, the, the media, in the press, and, and in research recently, and do a little bit of discussion on them. I, not, I don't want this to be totally lecture. Uh, first of all, though, I want to start with an understanding. When we talk about HIV and AIDS, typically we talk about it in the context of medicine, uh, data, uh, information, and all of that. But I want to suggest to you that it's not so much about all of those as it is about people. If we lose sight of the people, we fail. People are, none of the rest of it makes any difference except for the people involved. So keep your focus on the people, please. Not just on the medicine, not just on the science, but on the people. That's the key. Uh, first subject I'd like to talk about is one that's been in, in the press a great deal recently, and that's treatment-based prevention or test and treat. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave a big speech at the National Institutes of Health this week. And she said that test and treat is the, one of the primary strategies that the government is going to be using to slow the spread of HIV. 
This is based on research that came out this year that found that in serodiscordant couples where one is infected and the other is not, if the one who's infected is taking antiretroviral treatment, the risk to the partner drops 95%. That's awesome. That's wonderful, isn't it? I, that's just incredible. Are there problems with that? What problems do you see with that? Hmm? Well, the other percent, yeah, that's true. But, but the other 5%, but 90, I mean, how often do we get 95% reduction in transmission? That's, that's awesome. But what problems are there with this? How do we, how do we use this? What impact does it have on, on the way we deal with prevention? What are your thoughts? Yes. Continued promiscuity, yeah. In fact, one of the things that's interesting to look back on, you know, the sexual revolution of the 60s, the free love movement and all of that kind of thing, do you know what happened just before that? The availability of birth control pills. You see, you take away the consequence and all of a sudden the behavior can go wild. So that's a very real possibility. What else? What other implications are there from this? I'm sorry? Resistance. resistance. Why do you say resistance? Well, instead Why are you going to develop resistance quicker when you give people treatment earlier in the course of the disease? Okay, resistance happens when? Right, when people are taking ARVs and stop taking them or don't take them properly, then that provides the opportunity for the virus to mutate into a resistant form. And, and the, the fear is that we'll get something similar to what we've got with multidrug resistant and extra drug resistant treatments for tuberculosis. So why would that be a major concern in application of this research. One of the reasons is that when you start treating people with medications who have never been sick with HIV disease, then their only experience is, I have these side effects for the treatment, but they don't have the experience of the benefits of, of having been sick and getting well because of the treatment, so they are less motivated to, to adhere to the treatment regimen than they would be if they were had, had those that have had advanced HIV disease and then have gotten better. So you've got that. The fact is, let's remember, we're talking about taking these medications for a lifetime. Is there going to be a cure for AIDS? How many viruses can you name that we can cure? Can we cure it? Can we cure it? Let's be real careful with our use of words. How many viruses can we cure? Not treat, not vaccinate against. How many viruses can we cure? At least it's a pretty long sustained remission. <laughs> But we can't cure viruses, right? We've never cured a virus. 
So what makes us think we're going to cure HIV, which is probably more complex than the other viruses we're looking at? So I, I don't mean to be pessimistic. And, and folks, I pray, diligently pray that I'm wrong. I want there to be a cure. But I think talking about a cure for HIV is giving people false hope. So what we're talking about with ARV treatment and using treatment as a way to prevent the virus is we're talking about getting people onto a lifetime regimen of treatment. And so the, the probability of them not adhering for the rest of their lives is high. Okay, that's the issues here. What about in, in resource-limited settings? Africa, Asia, South America. What are the complications there? They may not be able to have a, a reliable supply line for drugs. Okay, what else? Sorry? Stigma, yes. You know, for us, one of the things that, that we in America have trouble imagining is that if you're living in a village, everyone in the village knows what medications you're taking. We take our medications in the privacy of our homes, but they don't have that privacy. So if you're taking medication every day, everybody in the village knows it. And the stigma attached to this disease is huge. What else? So the support services necessary for the ARVs to work properly are not universally available. Right. Most countries in Africa have uh, make ARVs available to people whose T-cell count is 200 or less. Okay? Now, T-cells are the cells the virus uh, kills that results in the, the compromised immune system. So when your T-cell count gets down to 200 or less, a normal T-cell count is what, around 1,200? Get down to 200 or less, you qualify for free antiretroviral medication. Some are moving that threshold up to 250. Frankly, I don't know of an African country that's been able to actually make it to get everyone with a T-cell count of less than 200 onto ARVs. World Health Organization is recommending that, that ARVs start being given at a threshold of 350. There are some countries, South Africa, Kenya is talking about it, that are trying to adopt that standard, but nobody's coming close to doing that. Nobody, no country in Africa has been able to even come close to immediately giving people ARVs as soon as they test positive, regardless of their T-cell count. Now, not only do we have a supply problem, there's a much, much bigger problem. Oh, Sorry? Labs where you can do viral uh, load and T-cell counts, you have to send, send your specimens off usually to the capital city in order to get uh, those test results. There's an even bigger problem. Yeah? Fraudulent drugs. Fraudulent drugs are a problem. By the way, there's been an interesting development in that area. Uh, there's an organization that's developed a system uh, of, of uh, I think it was barcodes, that they're putting on uh, prescription labels that uh, can tell you whether the, the 
drugs are fraudulent or, or legitimate. So there's been a, a development within the last year on that. It wasn't something I was thinking about talking about, but thank you for bringing it up. There's an even bigger problem. There just are not enough trained healthcare workers to diagnose, prescribe, and follow even the, the people who would qualify at a threshold of 350 T cells, much less a test and treat strategy. Now, Secretary of State Clinton on Tuesday, I think it was, in her speech at the NIH, said they're going to be working toward $60 million funding for a, uh, a trial run of test and treat across Africa. I have, honestly, some real concerns about that. When I'm in Africa, I don't even talk about test and treat because it's not something that is realistically available to them. Any other thoughts on this? I, I heard you say the test was with discordant couples. The test was done with discordant couples. Well, her comment is a Ugandan physician told her there's a mystery as to why you have a couple who are in a long-term sexual relationship. One is infected. The other one stays uninfected, sometimes for years. Well, and, and they're wondering why. Anytime I'm asked that question, my response is to, is to talk about the difference between exposure and infection. See, most people don't understand the difference between those two concepts. One of the things I, I have fun doing when I'm teaching about this is I'll just start acting like I'm coughing, and I'll cough all around the room and cough on everybody and say, imagine my cough was caused by a germ that's transmitted through coughing. How many of you would have been exposed? All of you. How many of you would have been infected? Maybe none, maybe one, maybe all. You see... What happens is that every single time that couple has intercourse, the uninfected partner is exposed to the virus, but not necessarily infected. Infection is something that could happen any time that you have sex with someone who's infected, but not, does not happen every time. So there may be some other factors that are resulting in the uninfected partner not being infected as quickly, and so these numbers may be a little bit high, but... Still, even if it was 75%, that would still be a very dramatic. And, of course, the reason that the partner, the infected partner being on ARVs is dramatically reducing the transmission is because ARVs dramatically reduce the viral load. And so when there is less concentration of virus, there is less potential for transmission. In the back. Okay, the comment is about those who apparently have some kind of a genetic resistance to it uh, and, and don't either become infected. And we have a group of prostitutes in, in, the, in Nairobi who have been studied for years, but nobody can figure out why. 
they're not becoming infected. Uh, that's a subject that, that I want to stay totally away from as an HIV educator. Okay, as a researcher, it's a very important thing to research. But as an HIV educator, the problem with that is as soon as we start talking about it, people in our audience start saying, well, maybe I'm one of those. And, and so I can do anything I want because I'll be one of those that doesn't get it. We, wanna, we don't want to get into that arena if we can avoid it. We'll never know who the long-term non-progressors are. And Interesting point. Okay. I mean, I'm, folks, I'm moving along because there's a lot I want to cover, and I don't want to get involved in, in minute discussion or discussion on rabbit trails. It's not really a rabbit trail. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I hope you'll forgive me. What about PrEP? Pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, there's a new CDC study called TDF2 that uh, was released in July of this year, providing evidence that a daily oral dose of ARVs used to treat HIV infection can reduce acquisition among uninfected individuals exposed to the virus through heterosexual sex. How do we use this? What's this mean to us practically? Selling a morning-after pill for HIV? Uh, is it a morning-after pill for HIV? It's, that's the suggestion. Now, we know, we know that, that in a healthcare setting, if you have an accidental needle stick or exposure like that, that yes, giving ARVs can reduce the risk of, of actually seroconverting. So that's true. And so the suggestion here is that we could start putting people on ARVs and people who are, are constantly or regularly involved in risk activities put them on ARVs and help them avoid becoming infected. What do you think about that? It encourages the behavior, true. The research was only done with heterosexuals. We don't know about uh, men having sex with men. And by the way, a little side note, let's not talk about homosexual. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I pick up on, on language because I think it's really, really important. And I'm not picking on you at all. But because it's very rare for it to be transmitted through sex between two females, that when we talk about homosexual, we, we're missing part of the information. And not only that, but when back in the 80s, I, I got involved in HIV education in 85. Back in the 80s and early 90s, we were talking a lot about risk groups. And one of the risk groups was homosexuals. And I kept running into guys that said, well, yeah, I had sex with other guys once in a while, but I'm not gay, so I didn't think I could get it. You see, and, and we have, in the prison system, we have a lot of men who have sex with other men because that's all that's available. But they would never self-identify as homosexual. And so if we talk about homosexual transmission, we, we leave.
lead them to believe that they're not at risk with their behavior. Is that okay? I'm not really not picking on you. No, no, I understand. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Other thoughts? Oh, she was just swatting at a fly. <laughs> John. The pre-exposure might have some value for a um, discordant couple that wanted to become pregnant. Potentially, yes. For a uh, discordant couple wanting to have a child, there's a, a potential use for it. However, what we get back into the whole issue of uh, resistant strains. If you're taking ARVs for a short period of time, uh, do you not risk developing resistance? And then you can't take the... And, and resistance isn't as big an issue here because we have first-tier, second-tier, third-tier, fourth-tier ARVs. If you, if you can't any longer be helped by the first line of ARVs, then you can go to the second but the second are more expensive, the third are more expensive, the fourth are more expensive, and just not available in much of the world. Okay? Yes? Uh, medication side effects. The side effects of the medication, exactly. Yeah, they can be significant, although the side effects are not as great now as they were in the late 90s when they first became available, but yes. Right. Okay. Uh, male circumcision. You've probably all heard, when I was at the International AIDS Conference in Toronto in 06, this research had just become available from Kenya and Uganda that found that a man who's been circumcised is 50 to 60% less likely to be infected than a man who's not. It doesn't protect his partner, his female partner, or his male partner for that matter, but it does protect... Uh, at least in heterosexual sex, it reduces the risk of the man being infected. And as I went, went around the International AIDS Conference, everywhere I went, everybody was talking about how do we get all of the adult men in Africa circumcised? And I thought, why in Africa? And why adult men? And you know, nobody that I can find is talking about motivating those cultures that don't traditionally uh, circumcise children to start doing that. And I don't understand that. I just got back from Kenya. You know, until recently, I thought of pharmacies as a place where you went to get medication. I never thought of it as a place to go and get an injection. But, you know, CVS and Walgreens and all of that are offering flu shots now, right? Well, in, in Africa and most of the world, pharmacies are called chemists instead of pharmacies. I was in Nairobi, and there was a chemist, and in the middle of the sign was a paper uh, little sign that had been taped on that said, circumcision available here. Can you imagine going to your pharmacy or your chemist to be circumcised? It kind of took me a bit by surprise. But I, I have to imagine how my wife would react if I came home one evening and said, Kathy, I think I'm going to get circumcised to avoid infection with HIV. How would she respond? What, what do you think the wives would say to that? And obviously it's not a procedure you can hide from your wife. If you had it done, she's going to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the only motivation I can think of for an adult man to get circumcised is because he's planning on having lots of partners. Other than that, it's not a pleasant procedure, I assume. 
you know, and, and, and then what about the man who sees the posters that say, stop AIDS, get circumcised, and he's already been circumcised. What's that say to him? I'm safe. Yeah. And, and I was in uh, Kisumu in Kenya and was talking with people there, and they were telling me that young men there, they go, get, go and get circumcised, and then as soon as they get circumcised, they need to make sure the equipment's still working so they have sex before they heal. So the way that these things are marketed and communicated can increase the spread of the virus instead of decreasing it. Yes, it's wonderful that we can reduce the risk by this much. And if you want to know why it works that way, talk to me later and I'll tell you. But we've got to be careful about how we use this information because it can mislead people and it can lead to uh, ways of, uh, lead to an increase in the spread of the virus. Have you seen this one? This is October 3rd of this year, uh, a report that women using injectable hormone contraceptive like Depo-Provera have a 50% higher risk of being infected than those that don't. Or an uninfected woman or an infected woman who uses this has a 50% higher risk of transmitting it to her male partner. Now, this is a preliminary study, but it hit the headlines around Africa. This is one of the primary, one of the most popular birth control methods in Africa. You get one shot every three months. It's great. What's happening is that women are refusing it because of this study. Now, it's so preliminary that the World Health Organization has planned a meeting, but they don't, haven't even scheduled it until next January because they don't feel it's an emergency to be, there's not enough data yet to be recommending that women stop using this. Another part of this same study found that a woman who is pregnant is 50% at greater risk of infection than one who is not. So if she stops using these injectable hormone contraceptives, her risk from stopping if she gets pregnant is almost identical to her risk, if the study is correct, of getting it because she's on the contraceptives. Has there been any study to show whether taking uh, injectable contraceptives changed a person's sexual behavior? Has there been any... I'm trying to repeat this for the recording. Has there been any study to find out whether taking the injectable contraceptives changes behavior? That was not part of, well, they, they did everything they could to correct for that in the study. Uh, and, and, of course, one of the things that's come out of this is encouraging women who are taking the contraceptives to also be sure that condoms are used. Because they need to understand that there is this increased risk of infection. But... Yes. Uh, that was done in, I think, 15 different countries in Africa. So it's a broad-based study. So there, there is there's something to be said for it. But, see, one of the things that bothers me a great deal is the way the media presents studies, research. 
they they you know go big guns on the stuff that that they think people will want to hear about, and they don't talk about they don't report on stuff that they don't think is going to be all that interesting to their readers, their viewers. And reporters are not scientists. They're not prevention educators. They're reporters, and they report what they think the public wants to hear. Sir, yes? Was this published in a referee scholarly journal? Yes, it was. The New York Times report is just a report on it, but yes, it was it was reported in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. Yes, sir? So this this is not an unexpected result because of the impact that this has on the on the vagina, the wall, and and fluids and so on. Okay, I'm I'm just repeating you for the tape because people hearing listening to the the recording won't get this if I don't. There's an interesting one that just came out. <coughs> About a, a easier antibody test, they call it Oroquick or uh, rapid antibody testing. This came out the first of August. Swabbing the gums, the results come in less than a minute. It's highly accurate, uh, but one of the problems with it is that it's the idea is to to distribute it in rural areas in Africa for people to do self tests, which means there will be no pretest or post test counseling. Now, the people that are pushing this <coughs> say that's not a problem because we're going to, we're, we're printing pre-test and post-test counseling information to distribute with it. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? <laughs> Probably in English. Well, let's, let's assume that they're better than that and they do it. It, not just in a national language, but in the tribal language they're distributing it to. What other problems are there with that? Hmm? Literacy? Okay. But you know what? Even people who are literate, even people who can read, in many, many cultures, do not learn well from reading. If you're in an oral culture... Even if you have enough education that you can read and comprehend, you, you don't learn things as well, you don't absorb them as well from a printed page as you do from oral. Not only that, I may be the only one in the room that does this, but when I get prescriptions, they come with a lot of printed material. And I will confess to you that I cannot remember reading any of that. So is the printed material enclosed in the package going to be effective? I have some concerns. Now, if this can be used in, the, in conjunction with counseling, that would be great. And one of the nice things about it is that it doesn't require blood. It's a, a swab of the mucosa in the, in the mouth, so <clears throat> you don't have to do a blood sample. One of the things that I would love to see happen more in the developing world would be for churches to offer HIV testing and counseling. 
then the counseling could be not just HIV counseling, but could also have a spiritual component. You know, there are folks that don't want to go to a a testing center because they don't want to be seen walking in the door. Because if you're seen walking in the door, rumors start about what you've been doing. But people will go to the church. So if we could, if this could be something that could be done in churches because there would no, be no need to have the training to take blood samples, that could be a good thing, a really good thing. Uh, <clears throat> there's also a plastic chip that has been developed and is being tested that uses a small amount of blood, costs just 10 cents to make, has no moving parts, electricity, external instrumentation, results in 15 minutes. It has very accurate results, according to the journal Nature Medicine. Uh, And it it can also be, the test can also (coughs) test for malaria and hepatitis. I think this is a potentially positive result, assuming we take care of the other concerns we've been talking about. Testing is key. It's important for testing to become more available. Any comments, thoughts, questions? Please. there wasn't going to be treatment available. So I think that would be another issue with sending out just these tests out to rural areas. Um, but then another thing... Let me repeat yeah. what you just said. <clears throat> she was in Zambia, and people there didn't want to get tested because treatment wasn't available. So why know that the next time you get sick, you could die? Is kind of the okay. Um, and then another thing, I know that Botswana implemented a national program where whenever, whatever time you went to the doctor for anything you would also be tested for HIV, so that kind of um, controlled the stigma because, you know, it's not your choice. You aren't choosing to go and get tested. So Botswana instituted routine testing every, one, every time you went to the doctor, you got tested voluntarily or, man, or without your knowledge? Um, no, they, people know, yeah. Okay, did they give consent? Yes. Okay, yes. So, so that re- reduced idea. the stigma of going to a testing site right. as long as there were people in the doctor's <laughs> office that had enough training and time to do the t- counseling right. associated with it. Yeah. So counseling is so key yeah. on this. Anything, any, anybody else? Yes? I think a positive uh, there, sh- there should always be confirmation, yeah, with Western blots so that because there can be false positives with testing. Yes. Microbicide. We've been looking for microbicides for years and years and years. What's a microbicide? Actually, a microbicide is typically a gel that a woman can put into her vagina before intercourse that would, uh, the idea is that it would, Destroy HIV so that it would, she would not become infected. The, the push for this is because condoms are a male-controlled prevention strategy, and it's an effort to find a female-controlled uh, prevention strategy. This is the first test I've seen, or first research I've seen, that shows any real hope. It's a tenofovir-based vaginal gel, <coughs> reduced acquisition of HIV by 39%. Uh, the cost of it is about 50 cents per application. 
There was another study that also showed that the same uh, gel reduced infection with H- HSV2, uh, herpes simplex, by 51%. That's good. But 39% reduction infection, it's better than nothing. Fifty cents an application? Yeah. Right. And the question that I've not seen an answer to is whether this is something that has to be done every time. There was a few years ago they were talking about developing a, a ring or something that could be slow release so it could be inserted maybe once a month. If, if this is something that has to be done every time and you're in a situation where there's spontaneity involved and you don't, may not have the opportunity to do it, you have a problem there. Another problem, and, and I don't think this one has it, but another problem with other candidates for uh, microbicide has been in the past that they were also contraceptive. So a woman that, that had to have a baby uh, had to stop taking the microbicide, and so there was that window for, for potential infection. This is a development that we need to follow. We need to stay on top of it and see what develops out of it. Other comments, questions on this one? In June of this year, there was a high-level meeting of heads of state in New York by the UN. Their statement at the end of it said that by 2020, their goal is to have zero new infections, zero stigma, and zero AIDS-related deaths. What do you think? I'm hearing a lot of laughter. Is that uh, a laudable goal? Let let me... I have a tendency to be a little cynical on these things. Because in all of the announcements that I saw about this, one of the major focuses of the announcement was, in order to accomplish these goals, we're going to need a lot more funding. My fear is that these goals are established as a way to coerce and force people, donors, into funding efforts. Um, There have been other goals in the past by the UN and the World Health Organization to get uh, universal access to, uh, to ARVs by, what was it, 2005, I think it was. We're not even close still. So they set these goals. They set people's hopes at a high level. And then, well, in that same announcement, they said by 2015, they want to double the number of people on ARVs to 15 million out of the 33 million that were infected as of 2009. And mother-to-child transmission. That was also in the Secretary of State speech. We're going to end uh, mother-to-child transmission. Uh, cut in half tuberculosis-related deaths in people living with HIV and increase preventative measures for the most vulnerable populations. This is a very interesting phrase, for the most vulnerable populations. Who would that include? Sorry? Women? Okay. Who else? Children? Who else? Sorry? The unborn, okay. Prisoners, they're not on the list. Who else would it include? 
Prostitutes. Be more specific than just people on the fringes of society. Drug abusers, IV drug users, and men who have sex with other men. You see, when you see this phrase, most vulnerable populations or high-risk groups, what you need to know is the idea here is that we're going to focus our prevention efforts on, on women, on commercial sex workers, on men who have sex with men, and on IV drug users, and basically ignore the general population. I have a problem with that. I'm not comfortable with that approach. But that's the approach that, that the AIDS world is moving toward. Oh, there was another study done just recently that talked about uh, risk through pre-masticated food. Caregivers are chewing up their food, uh, the, a, an infant's food, and giving it to them. And I understand that's a practice that's not uncommon in this country uh, and in, in Latin America as well as in Africa. The problem comes when the caregiver is living with HIV and has sores in their mouth so that when they're pre-chewing the food, it can get the blood of the caregiver into the food that is then given to the baby and there's a risk of transmission that way. Um, another thing that's, that's been talked about quite a bit lately is in our world economy today, there are limited resources. And so there's been a move now to take some of the funding that's been applied to HIV and transfer it to NCD, or non-communicable diseases, and so these two fields are competing for available resources. And you're going to see more and more of that happening. And honestly, I don't know where to come down on that one. Uh, it's difficult. I just thought you might be interested in a little more from uh, the Secretary of State's speech the other day. Uh, here, here are the, 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 outline, the approach that Secretary Clinton outlined for uh, coming to an AIDS-free generation are focusing on male circumcision, multi-drug cocktails to prevent mother-to-child transmission, and test and treat. Um, the other thing that she announced in her speech that I found interesting is that the United States now has a new special envoy for global AIDS awareness. And our, our new special envoy representing the United States in this area is Ellen DeGeneres. I think that's interesting. I'm particularly concerned about that because as an HIV educator for the last 26 years, one of my focuses has been on trying to separate in people's minds AIDS and homosexuality. And if you were to ask people to give five words to, that would represent Ellen DeGeneres, homosexuality would be up there in the top five. So I'm afraid that this is working against that, and, and I'm concerned about that. It was interesting that uh, the comedian that she is, she, is, she uh, ended her time on the podium to say, by saying, now if you'll excuse me, I have to go look up what envoy means, now that I'm a special envoy.
Anyway. <laughs> uh, here's another one that, that was just uh, this week. Duke University has uh, developed a pouch about, about the size of a ketchup pouch that you get at a fast food restaurant. Uh, that they can put ARVs in. Specifically at this point, the focus is on a way of, of transmitting or transporting ARVs for pediatric use and uh, um, prevention of mother-to-child mother transmission. Uh, currently, there's a problem with the, the medications uh, becoming no longer liquid because of contact with the, the packaging that they're in. And so this is something to follow if you're working in, in remote settings, something that could be very helpful. We're just about out of time. Are there any questions, any other things that we ought to talk about? Yes? When Secretary Clinton or someone in government makes a policy like this, whom do they consult about uh who does the government consult about this? I'm sure they consult, uh, uh, what's his name, Ambassador Goosby, who's the head of uh, AIDS for our government. And uh, I'm sure they consult the CDC. I'm really not sure. They didn't consult me. <laughs> I'd love to be on that list. I don't see, t I've never seen testing looked at with any kind of power like, like you're talking about, a fetish power that I'm better than anybody else. No. Uh, testing is something that's, that's feared a great deal uh, in, in most of the world. As I said before, if you want to get our, our updates on news like this, please put your sticker on one of the pages over there. We also, my wife and I are missionaries and send out a prayer letter. You can check that box. If you'd like to go with me on a trip or, or train to be a facilitator or get any more information possibly about hosting one of our seminars, check that box on the list. Uh, there's a brochure here that will tell you more about our organization, and my business cards are over there. Please remember, uh, before you leave, to fill out the evaluation for this breakout session. Thank you so much for coming. I hope it's been helpful to you.